You're listening to an American Theatre podcast. American Theatre is a publication of Theatre Communications Group, www.americantheatre.org. Welcome, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Rob Weiner Kent. I'm the editor-in-chief of American Theatre, and this is our March 25th, 2022 edition of Off Script, our podcast on all things theatrical. My pronouns are he, him. I'm coming to you not from the Here Arts Center library, uh, lobby, which is my back, visual background, but from Queens, uh, the land of the Mass, Beth, and Rockaway. And I'm here with... Allie Pearson. I'm the associate editor here at American Theater. Uh, my pronouns are she, her, and I'm also coming to you from Queens, um, the land of the Mass, Beth, and Rockaway people. Awesome. And this podcast and, and live chat is brought to you by TCG Theater Communications Group, which leads for Just and Thriving Theater Ecology. Please support the organization and it supports our efforts to continue to bring you, you know, journalism as well as this podcast and live chats. Very excited today. We have, uh, Mayan Teo, the director of a new play at Here Arts Center, Seven Minutes, um, by Stefano, Stefano Massini. Uh, you might know him as the author of Lehman Trilogy, and this is a new play. Well, not a new play, actually, but it is a new translation of his play, uh, Siete Minuti. Uh, uh, it's a rich topic, labor management. I can't wait to talk to, to Mayan about uh, their production of this and about their career, actually, as a director, director and uh, arts leader all around the country. Before we get to Mayan, let's talk a little bit about what we've been doing the last couple of weeks. Um, we had a wonderful piece about Sioux Teatro by Lisa Kennedy, based in Denver. They're a Denver-based theater that founded, founded about 50 years ago, uh, more or less in the wake of or at the height of the uh, Teatro Campesino and Chicano theater movement on the West Coast, uh, led by El Teatro Campesino, Luis Valdez. Um, there's a new piece there called Papi, Me, and Cesar Chavez, which is all about uh, the labor leader who led the United Farm Workers. Um, and it's a bit of, it's a piece, I believe, that they started their theater with or was very much at the beginning. And in, in, in any case, it looks back on the kind of history and, and, and um, subject matter and characters that were part of that movement. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's a lovely piece about the work they do and it puts uh, puts into words and articulates uh, Anthony Garcia, Tony Garcia, their artistic director. Um, this is something I know from my work with Cornerstone over the years. I got, to, like I say, my work with Cornerstone as well as covering them. I did, I got roped into doing work with them because their their ethic was about community as much as um, as much as anything. Uh, and 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 Tony Garcia has a great quote about the work is the aesthetic. Um, the work with the community uh, is the aesthetic. It's it's uh, that's not an opposition to you know standards of quality or object you know uh, uh, professionalism, but really the work is about something other than just those things. So it's anyway it's a wonderful tribute to their work. Uh, Fifty years. We don't tend to do anniversary pieces. We often that used to be a policy of my of my predecessor Jim O'Quinn. He would get pitches all the times for anniversaries. He said, we don't do anniversaries <laughs> because everyone has one. But we, you know, we do like to look at uh, and, and honor the legacy and longevity of some great companies around the country, especially ones that are under 
undercovered. So Sutiatro, take a look at that one. Um, Another really fun piece, Ali, you want to tell us about? Yeah, last week we had a great piece from our writer Woodzik, who uh, covered um, the wonderful array of RuPaul's Drag Race alums who have been taking the stage all over the place. And that is such a fun, fun piece to take a look at. Uh, it was very exciting to to read about their journey from from Drag Race to the stage. Yes, and then I also did a Q&A. Sorry, we're jumping around here. This is keeping it live. Um, uh, with the, with the, you know, we like to talk to artistic leaders when they're coming or going. Uh, we, we do sort of exit interviews when they leave and like to do interviews when new artistic directors begin. And Kelly Kerwin, she was hired last summer, but is only really opening up the theater now uh, at Oklahoma City Rep, which is about 25 years old. And it was founded by Don Jordan and a bunch of actors, a sort of an ensemble theater, like a lot of theaters are. Um, and then Kelly Kerwin, who's, Whose work uh, has been more at under the radar and other other and in Chicago storefront theater um, has been hired to lead this. Well, for her is a pretty big theater, but for the for the I mean, based on her previous career, actually, I guess, I guess the public is a big theater. But in any case, she's running a uh, I forget the budget size, uh, but a decent sized theater uh, in Oklahoma City, in the middle of the middle of the country, and uh, we had a great talk with her. Um, I didn't realize that the Flaming Lips are from Oklahoma City, so um, hopefully they'll 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 do a musical there or something. <laughs> anyway, um, there was also in our, in our news pieces. Uh, yeah, uh, the the Actors Equity Association has released the 2020 Diversity and Inclusion Hiring Bias Report, uh, and despite some improvements, the data shows that there are still noticeable disparities in opportunity and pay in the theater industry nationwide. <laughs> yes. And, and is the water is wet files. No, but no, it's, it, it's, it, it, it didn't surprise anybody, but it did put some numbers on, on the, on, on the, the pervasive sense that uh, there's not been enough progress in hiring. And it wasn't just, um, I think some, in some categories, there was opportunity. There was some parity of opportunity of, of, of jobs, but the pay is still, there's still pay disparity. Would that be right to say? Yeah, there's still definite pay gaps. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's something that, obviously, the union can't change all of that. But uh, we'll be talking in a second. That's a wonderful segue <laughs> <laughs> to talk about uh, the play The play we're talking about today, Seven Minutes, and to bring on uh, Mayan Teo, uh, the director. Um, if you want to join us, Mayan, um their credits include uh, Chronicle X, Skin Folk, an American, an American show, uh, and they 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 were announced fairly recently as an associate artistic director at Oregon Shakespeare Festival. We want to ask them about that, um, but we'll let's start with uh, seven minutes. Man, wonderful to have you on. Uh, thanks so much for having me. So tell us, I, I, I'd love to. You know, we often just jump into discussing the play because I've read it. Ali was lucky enough to see it just talking about the play and all of its issues. But why don't you give us, if you, you've been asked, what, what's the play about and what happens in sure. it? So <laughs> Stefano Massini, who wrote the Lehman Trilogy, uh, he was really inspired by a true story that happened in a French factory um, that had all women workers. And so um, he uh, uh, took the story and he uh, wrote it in Italian. And uh, Lee Sunday Evans, who's the artistic director of Waterwell, and Francesca Spadiglietti, the translator, really did a lot of powerful work in carrying it 
to a production in English here. Mm. And what's so powerful about this is that the story itself, where it begins with 10 women who are in a break room of factory, just waiting on their representative of their union to come back and let them know what the suits have decided or where things are now that foreign investors have come and bought over a part of the factory. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's filled with, are we going to have health insurance? Are we going to have, uh, our ships going to be cut? Do we still have a job? All of those things are alive for them. And when she comes back in, they say, what is it? And she says, actually, we, the factory isn't closing. We have our jobs. Mm-hmm. We have all of that. There's only one condition. And that condition is they're asking us to give up seven minutes of our 15 minute break. And that really is the core of where the play really launches to be a question on what are we willing to give up as workers? Like, what are we actually, what is actually on the table when we're talking about power and capitalism? What, what, it, what stops us, what starts us into collective action, what stops us from collective action? All of those, those things are really right in the play. Wow. And how did you particularly come to this project and what, what made you, what attracted you to it? Um, you know, I, I feel uh, incredibly terrified and grateful that the last two pieces I've worked on have been other directors who I really admire handing me a project, okay. right? So from like Maddie Sayet and Where We Belong, who is a director saying, will you direct me? I was like, oh my God, oh God, you're going to know all my tricks. And Lee Sunday Evans, who I think is a phenomenal director as well, um, uh, you know, she emailed me the script and I can tell you that, that, that the script came at a moment where I was... Um, doing a show at a at a organization that to be quite frank was not in position to make theater safety safety because I quickly became their HR and EBI departments. Oh wow. Okay. Within four rehearsals online. <laughs> and I remember calling my union. I remember calling SDC and saying, I I I don't know what to do. This is a really terrible situation. And, and it has come to an impasse and where I don't know how to continue and I've never left a job. (laughs) This is, you know, I love, I actually really love directing. This is like my calling and my like soul's like desire, you know, I don't like to step away from those things, uh, that, that I love to do. Um, and I remember I read this play in that moment where I was trying to figure out what to do. And I remember it working inside of me in a way that helped me to understand that it's my, my decision to walk away is not just about me. Okay. Anything we do is actually not just about us. And I can tell you that it took a lot of courage, but my union really supported me, the SEC. And then I, I left the job and the theater closed because they realized that they had so much work to do. And they have just reopened with a new artistic director who's a black man. And I could not be happier about the fact that they took the time to actually grapple with what was going on. Hmm. And, and I was, you know, and I was terrified, like, if I leave the will the actors get paid, you know, and they, yeah. they were. Um, so, so, so the play came at that moment. The play helped me make a major decision in my life. And I thought to myself, if it's going to do that for me, what will it mean to actually work on it? Right. Because, you know, when we're working on it, it becomes inside of our DNA. It actually like needs every single part of me to um, work with the actors and the designers and everything to make this world. Mm-hmm. I thought, what, a, what a great fortune. What a, what an honor it is to, mm-hmm. to uh, have something like that uh, in my system with mm-hmm. people. 
to be able to do that and then to offer that to an audience. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, not to go backwards a, just a little bit. I'm curious what you think the English translation and the new American setting has brought to the play. Maybe there are conversations about immigration, skilled labor, capitalism, this country's, you know, complicated racial history. Like how, how has that informed the play? Yeah, I mean, what I loved that Lee and Francesca did were, was to extremely thoughtfully uh, look at what unions are like here and the situation here. So I can tell you that when you hear healthcare in the play, that was part of the English translation because other places have universal healthcare. You know, <laughs> like when people, someone loses a job in another country, they don't have to think about healthcare in the same way that our actors have to think about how many weeks they're working in order to get healthcare from your, you know, from all of that. If you just think about that, that's kind of mind blowing that we had to make that change because <laughs> of the situation we're in. That's one of the major changes that are there. Um, I think another thing that I remember engaging with, with Liam Franceskins, I, I read it and I thought to myself, this is so clearly not from a consciousness of somebody who has the experience of or is on the land of uh, uh, a place with the history of enslaved peoples, right? It's just, it's just not there. When we're talking about free labor, <laughs> when you're saying, do I give over free labor? And there's a line, always the same, always the same, always the same. I, I mean, it's so alive here in this country. Mm-hmm. And especially more alive now for all the non-black people since, since the racial reckoning, you know, it's like black folks have always been like, yes, this is always the same. And so I, I just love the way in which the play itself rings more, um, with, with different vibrations here and deeper vibrations in many ways here because of our history of enslaved peoples and, and what this country has been built on and the land that was stolen. So. So there's there's one level there of like, okay, wow, so what does it mean, you know, to cast a black woman as as the the um as Linda, the representative who's who's saying, no, let's not just say yes to them. Let's really think about it. Like what does that mean? And then also another thing that was really powerful in all of the research was that a, a scholar reflected upon um um the ways in which we perceive immigrants. And how immigrants are at the forefront of collective action here and how the play actually really sets it as a immigrant versus mm-hmm. um, there's some lines in the play about all you immigrants, you know, you feel like she saved, you know, because um, you're so, just so grateful to have a job. And to be quite honest, you know, my parents would be in that camp when they came over as immigrants from Singapore here to America when I was nine years old. I, I would have firmly said that's true. And the history of organizing collective action here in the U.S. actually says it's not true. And so that was something that I was like very, I was very much engaged in thinking about casting to make sure that we don't perpetuate that idea of it when it really isn't true. So there are a couple of things that I remember thinking about, like, how, how can we actually tell the story of collective action in this time and this day, knowing our history without having a black trans woman, right? Without having mm-hmm. uh, folks of the experience who have fought for so long be represented in this piece. And it's not about that. 
but it needs to reflect that and be the bones of the production. Of course. Yeah. I was so struck. I mean, I, I loved this cast. They were just, everyone was so strong and um, the diversity of experience that everyone was able to bring to this story was just so refreshing to see. You know, uh, Mayhem, you mentioned uh, uh, the difference between, I mean, healthcare is one thing, uh, but I get the I get the impression, but again, this is probably is global capital is global capital. Um, that unions were just more powerful uh, uh, and had more more sway in Europe um, in general, let alone Italy or France. But did you find that that was not the case? Were there any other other tweaks in, in that in that in that respect? Well, I think there are a lot of different things that um, Lee and Francesca found in terms of how unions operate. Right. Like, where are we now? And the fact is, is that corporate busting has been very successful. And so you see a decline in unions because of that here in the U.S. And of course, the people that we were talking to, the presidents of the union, um, uh, uh, of the coalition of of labor women's union, uh, Elise Bryan, came and talked to us. Right. She was so brilliantly helping us understand where we are right now. And of course, a lot of the people in the room, the actors, you know, they have their union, you know, I have my own union. Um, it, it, it was really profound to see how the story is actually for people who do not have the education of what the union can really do, which is why they are going through a lot of the fear of not knowing how to mobilize power. Right. Right. So that's the thing that we we kept coming up against, where it'd be like, oh, you could call your union rep. Oh, even after five, they would be there. But the story is really about people who do not have another way out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that pressure cooker of that, there is no phone call to make. There just isn't. But for a time, we were trying to test that and see, can that person go and try to at least have a phone call or, or can we not? So, so a lot of those, those details of how the union works and how unions are actually very effective in this country, mm-hmm. uh, were not actually laid into it because the play is about how without the education and understanding of what a union can do, people do not have any other option. Right, right, right. And that really is the case. I, I talked to um, Annie Nguyen, who uh, is by the, part of the BIPOC theater um, critic lab. And she asked me, she said something like, um, oh, she, she told me that her both her parents are factory workers. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, wow, okay. I said, what do you think they would say if they saw this play? And she said, I think they would think it was a fiction because they wouldn't believe it's possible to fight. Mm-hmm. And I said to her, actually, the characters are the same. Yeah. There's a, the reason why there's a play <laughs> is yeah. because the characters don't believe it's possible to fight. They actually say it's always been there. It's this way. There's no solution. Yeah. Yes, you're right. They're trying to squeeze the lemon. They're trying to take every part of profits from us. But what are we to do? Right. So right. The, the characters right. actually going through that that themselves and at the end of the year she said to me something i thought was so powerful she said you know i feel like this play and this production is like a gift to my family Hmm. that it actually is about how we feel powerless in the face of power and we also don't understand that actually our hands are their power 
Right. But we forget that we, because we've been asked to forget that and we've been continually forced to forget that mm-hmm. so that we don't take our power back. Right, right. No, it's, it's, the, it's the ownership, ownership society, quote unquote, I put in quotes, <laughs> where, where, where we don't, we aren't encouraged to, to think of our labor as owning our labor. And, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it, and a lot of it comes down to also who, who's, who seemed to be, um, who has the cards, who holds the leverage. But like, as Linda points out, eventually, I mean, it's like, it's just, it is, it's interesting. This, this play, her arguments go so against the grain of how, most of us are raised to think most mm. of us in this country are, you know, that the idea that the workers could actually ask management to give up something. What, what? <laughs> like, as, as if, yeah, no, I, I, um, and I, I think we wanted to get into at some point about, and you made the analogy already to, to, to theater labor, um, and the theater labor situation, but I don't, I think, um, that, that would probably lead into what I think you want to ask Ali about, yeah, I had a, a quick, there's a, a, Linda had a line that is, is still sitting with me now um, about how other things always end up being more important than her health. And she's like, I haven't been well in, in a long time, but other things just keep getting in the way. And, and it led me to have this question of, you know, can people be healthy? Can people be well without job security, without a healthy work environment? And especially with the pandemic and, and everything that we've been considering in the last few years, like, what do we do about that? Like, how do we, how do we give space for people to take care of themselves? I mean, that's the million dollar question. <laughs> like, thank you. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. So one of the talkbacks and, and Waterwell has, and working theater, who's working collaboration with Waterwell have been setting up these incredible conversations. And the first one was with Starbucks union workers, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the people in the audience was like, okay, okay, I know I'm a suit. All right. I'm a suit. And I just want to know, like, what are you fighting for? You know? And he said in the way of like, are you going to say like a dollar more an hour or something like that? You know, like, like he just said it in this very particular way. And you know how the union worker responded? He responded by saying, um, we want safety in the workplace. We want the equipment to work so it doesn't harm us. And we want to be able to uh, not work while we're sick. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. And he, he immediately got it. He was like, oh, oh, you're you're fighting for basic human rights. <laughs> like, <laughs> like what we consider to be a basic human right. Right. So when you're saying that, I first of all want to say, it's not just about self-care. <laughs> right, right. This is not just about self-care. Mm. This is about each other care. This is about like caring as like human beings who are interdependent upon each other and that who are not disposable as part of a cognitive system. Mm-hmm. Right. This is a paradigm shift into being able to understand that we are all necessary to each other, not for the sake of profit, but the sake of living and breathing. And growing and learning and like the spiritual gifts of like, you know, enlightenment. Like we actually all need each other for like the basics and, and, and the more than basic. Um, so to, to me, I, I really feel like we have to actually look at this together. Mm-hmm. Every single 
part, I don't even want to say layer because in layer there's hierarchy, mm -hmm. right? But how can we like topple hierarchy, look at it sideways, understand the effects that we have upon each other. And then also self-care, how we, how we, how our minds think about the world, right? That man needed that paradigm shift. He needed to shift from the impulse to immediately be suspicious of the worker as greedy. Mm -hmm. As the worker as asking for more than, than, than what they need. Like that's a paradigm. Right. In the same way where, you know, we are stuck in that paradigm of like Jeff Bezos is going to make as much money as he can off people without treating them well. And there's that's a paradigm that has been earned consistently by millionaires. Right. Mm -hmm. So, like, if they want to shift that paradigm, then how can we actually look at co-ops, worker owned? How do we how do we actually shift that paradigm in order to make sure that we're not continually stuck in some sort of rut of capitalism that as we have seen continually is not working for most of us. Right. Right. I, I know, um, you know, we, we have to think about the, we see white American theater document that came out a couple of summers ago um, as part of the, what, what's now called the racial reckoning. But uh, as much as it's about race uh, and, and other uh, forms of marginalization, it's a lot of, it's about, I mean, this is related. I'm not, it's, it's really, it, it's about labor. Uh, it's about, um, working conditions and 10 out of 12s. Um, and I think one skepticism that people have in, in the arts is that, well, the arts are different, you know, arts, artists want to work longer. And, and you, you're telling me, I, I, I can't, I can't stay up all night working on my set, you know, that, that kind of, I, I wonder what I've, I've, that, that's a lot of different, different topics rolled into one, but I wonder, if you if you see it as a as a as this play is speaking directly to to theater workers in a way that um, I think you've already spoken eloquently about how it might speak to them, but if you could talk about maybe the differences between this kind of labor uh, that that the play is about and uh, you know w what you do. I mean, I will say that like yes, it's yes, you're right. It speaks to every worker, and it also right. speaks to every suit. <laughs> And it all, <laughs> yeah. hmm. um, I want to say that it has spoken deeply to us, the folks who have been making it. And I can tell you like how, how thrilled I am and grateful I am that Waterwell as producers have really stepped up to that. Right. Great. It is a, Waterwell is a small company that did not balk at an 11 person play. Can you tell me? Can you tell me who else is producing 11 people plays? Come on now. What? And everyone's being paid a living wage, right? right. So, so that is something that is, first of all, first and foremost, I just want to say that, that that is actually what we're trying to like live into it. And I remember looking at the, one of the first things that Lee did uh, in our, one of our meetings was like, let's look at the budget together because mm -hmm. I was concerned. Like, how are we going to afford an 11 person play, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and, and so I think that that, that's, that's something that we, we all looked at. And then also, what are we doing to take care of our bodies? What are we doing to take care of ourselves in this workplace where there is such a tenuous line of our emotions and our characters' emotions, right? Because we are the bodies having to play these out. 
So I will say that there is a lot of care that went into understanding who the characters are and who we are and our relationship to work and our relationship to gender and our relationship to what it is. So that was very much at the forefront. Um, Genevieve um, Ortiz, incredible stage manager. Yesterday um, at our final, I, I just had my final preview rehearsal yesterday. At the end of it, she said, I'm so grateful for this room where I didn't have to leave feeling terrible about myself because the director and the people were, were um, putting like all of their shit on me. Right. Stage managers are so often used as the punching bag from actors, from directors and everything. And I just remember thinking to myself, I said, sorry, I said, sorry, immediately. I was like, Genevieve, I'm sorry that our industry and field consistently uses you and others in your position as this role, mm. because there's so much going on. It's so much emotion. It's, it's no excuse. So you're absolutely right. That document is actually not just about, um, uh, equity in mm -hmm. race and, and hiring. It's also about equity in how we treat each other and how we're paid and all of that. And right. it's all intersectional. There's like no separating them one from the other, you right. know? Right. So I will say that like we wanted to really practice that in the room as much as possible. Like how do we actually do this well and right? There was one day where uh, Adam Frank, the managing director came in and said, you know what, we're trying this out. If you all have any needs for elder care, partner care, or whatever that you're finding hard to do right now because you're doing the show, we have a little pot that we've set aside. Let us know. Hmm. And we, we don't know what we're, it's new for us. You know what I mean? We don't have like an application. We don't know how to check on you. We're not going to do all that because we don't know what we're doing, but we want to do this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, that is so brave. We don't know what we're doing, but we're going to do this. <laughs> where, where it's always about, can you prove that you need that? No, yeah. can you say that you need that? And we'll listen. Yeah. yeah, that willingness is so important. That's radical. Hmm. All right, this is a little bit of a process question, but this play is a tight 90 minutes. People are talking on top of each other it's a real discussion how were you able to get that timing so precise like did you rehearse in a particularly timed way how how were you able to make that happen <laughs> <laughs> oh my god well oh um yeah flying right like the dialogue <laughs> is just flying like there are there are chunks of text by certain characters and whatnot. But for the most part, it's 11 people in it together. Um, I will say we did a lot of line throughs. <laughs> like, like what, honestly, I believe that like uh, actors are eventually have to carry the play, right? My job is to meet their needs in order for them to carry the play and also to shape it and also to do all the other stuff. But if I'm not meeting their needs, it's, it's not helpful. So I actually, um, in the very beginning, we came up with agreements. I say, when do you all want to be off book for your work? And how do we want to think about it? And by what time? And so how do we structure to get there and all of that? And most of them said, I've never been asked this question. And I was like, I, you know, 
like, I don't always ask this question. Maybe I should always ask this question, you know, like, because they, they responded to such, such a, I've never, I've just been told, I've just been told. So I would say that the room was very much about what do you need? What do you need? Okay. You need to get there. What do you need? And I always assume their best intentions that we're all going to want to like be badasses together when we meet an audience, you know, like I have no reason to assume otherwise. Um, so we really structured a lot of like, what, what do you need? Okay. You need line through. Okay. We'll do a line through. You need it recorded. Okay. We'll record it. We like actually took the time to sit together, have people record. And then they had that, that, you know, a tool for them to memorize. Um, and, and, you know, um, one of the things that we, we just had to be together to do it. And that's the thing. You can't be alone to do this play. You really need each other to do it. There's just no possibility of like rehearsing it alone. Mm-hmm. So um, it was really ensemble. It was like everyone's called all the time, except for maybe a couple of hours for uh, Linda to work through some of the deep um, uh, arguments that she's going through. But otherwise we were all together. We did together. That's awesome. I just wonder, yeah, I, again, I have the disadvantage of not having seen it, but I've, I've, I know there's a story Frank Capra used to use a stopwatch until, <laughs> until it's like faster, Jimmy Stewart faster. Like, nope, under, it's gotta, <laughs> I, I don't think you necessarily did that, but it sounded like it's, it's a fast paced play. You know, the other antecedents, of course, it's been cited before that 12 Angry Men is, of course, a, I don't know, I don't know if Stefano used that as an actual template, but, um, it does evoke that in the, in the, in the, in the sort of one person against the group. It's almost exactly 12. Um, and I know that that piece is still performed a, a lot around the country, although I think there's a licensed version that's 12 angry people now, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I wonder how you, and again, Ali, Ali assures me that the, the, the play is super lively. I wonder how you av- avoid the sort of cliche of people in a room arguing and making it, making it lively. Did you have some strategies? Um, and how did you approach that, um, to keep the, urgency and, and, and life in the room you know this is a very new kind of play for me actually because mm. it unity of space time and action right yeah. like that's rare yeah. um uh i i love me some transitions and like cues <laughs> as a director <laughs> like, i don't think i've directed anything with less than like a hundred cues in a while <laughs> and and this play has five <laughs> So, you know, it's, it just, it just goes. Um, yeah. Um, I would say, okay, I'll tell you what the actors love. All right. <laughs> what the actors loved was we did runs with like themes. Like, so we had like melodrama and soap opera and we had like musical theater. So there are moments where the play came up with so much life because they were really like playing it through. (laughs) The musical theater one was amazing because you, because everybody would like underneath like one particular monologue, there was like a beat going underneath and then you could start to hear all the threads. And then when someone would interrupt it, they would interrupt it with a beat and a different kind of way forward. Or sometimes we were like, no, the beat continues and it would keep going forward as well. So we used a lot of really fun techniques like that to, to get them to hear the play in all sorts of different ways and how to get deeper in the possibilities of what they actually mean mm-hmm. through having to translate it through rhythm and tune and melody and, and harmony and all of that you know, or, or, or like overt emotion. Mm-hmm. Um, so we did a lot of fun things like that for sure. Well, yeah, I, I, musical theater is, is not, it's not a bad segue to, to ask you about your time running musical theater factory. I um, mean, I also wanted to ask you because 
you have been an artistic director in a sense, not a suit necessarily, but you've been in a management position. Um, and I wondered uh, about how that, how you move through that, that experience, but both, you know, the fun aesthetic part, but also just the thorny making work with people, making sure it's, it's safe and healthy. Yes, uh, absolutely. And, and uh, just so that for everybody who comes to see uh, uh, yeah. seven minutes, yeah. the theme song would be who will stop the suits. And um, I invite <laughs> you when you come in and hear that, just check in on which character says it and um, reach out to me in social media. Let me know if you found it. It's, it's a little, here, here's a little Easter egg. Oh, Easter egg. Okay. Yeah. I'll Easter, we'll stop we... the suit. <laughs> okay. Um, thanks for that question about musical yeah. theater factory. You know, I can say that first and foremost, I'm an artist. First and foremost, um, I did not come up through institutional theater. I did not come up um, in that way. Um, I came up as an academic, as a professor, as as an artist. And when I when I uh, got the job of being an artistic director at Musical Theater Factory, I knew that like I didn't want to perpetuate the same kind of gatekeeping practices mm -hmm. or payment practices that I had experienced as an artist, like continually, right? Um, uh, I just remember like how, how terrible it was and hard it was and it still is, you know, um, uh, an amazing development organization that has now since closed would pay $150 for a week of work. $150 for a week of work. And this was the premier development organization in New York City. <laughs> right? It's yeah. like, it's like, how, how do you, what? And this is like yeah. the premier. So yeah. in the premier, you're making $150 a week. Who is actually working here in, in this field, except for those of a trust fund, which mm -hmm. I do not have. Right. <laughs> so I think that my perspective very much comes from being an activist. Mm -hmm. I think that me as a leader is very much of like, oh, how do we change the pipeline? How do we change the field? How do we change what it's like? Because without, you know, the internship at Berkeley Rep, which included housing, I would never have been able to step into professional theater. Mm -hmm. that, is, that is how I was able to. It was only two at the time I was graduating from, from college that had a paid internship with housing was the arena stage and Berkeley rep. Mm, right. And, and because of that, I'm in the theater as a professional right now because of the Phil Killian fellowship at OSF that I got in 2015. I'm a professional in the theater right now because of yeah. many things like that. Um, I'm able to like live and work right now. So for me as an artist leader, artistic leader and an artist leader, I'm, I'm very interested in how do we change that? How do we change how we get in? So at Musical Theater Factory, um, I worked very closely with the managing director, Aaron Sally, to make sure that artists are paid and that we pay our staff. So, uh, in three years, I think we went from a $96,000 organization, 96,000 organization to a $300,000 organization. And a lot of that, all of that went right back to the artists, right? And we also hired a lot of artists to run the organization. There was only a few of us, but, but you know, it all went back into it. So that was one thing. And how to change curation. So I really thought about the makers program and how, you know, I don't want to be like the only person who chooses things because I'm going to miss something. Hmm. I only have my experience and my taste to go on. What if actually at every step of the process, when artists enter into a way of, of, of um, uh, being engaged with people all across the field, 
and to fall in love with their work, what does that mean? And what does it mean if I actually don't have a choice at the very end of it? What does that mean for me as an artist to be able, artistic leader to serve artists if they know that I actually didn't have a choice in the final matter and if they didn't get in, I will still serve them. You know, like, I just think that there's a lot of things about power that I really engage with because I'm so close to being the worker. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm still the worker. I'm still the worker. I'm still a freelance director. I'm still someone who is hired in to direct a show. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that that perspective is actually really uh, very much a part of how I think about programming. I think about uh, shifting practices and how I, I, I'm looking at the field and I'm looking at how, what I'm being offered mm. and about what's produced and the things I want to be produced and how they can be sometimes very far from each other. Mm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, can I ask about your role at OSF and, and what that's been like for you? Absolutely. So I'm the associate artistic director, one of three, and the director of new work. Um, and I joined OSF in August. I am abundantly grateful that Nataki Garrett uh, is my boss <laughs> and that Nataki uh, uh, invited me to be a part of the very uh, dope team of artistic with Evren Ochkin, um, uh, director of artistic programming and Scarlett Kim, uh, director of innovation and strategy. So we're the three that make up the associate artistic directors. And I, I, I think about my job as, um, you know, I, I wasn't thinking about leaving musical theater factory per se. I really enjoyed working there. Um, I think the organization does phenomenal things from the very beginning uh, of Shakin and AFAC's tenure. Um, but I remember when Nataki got the job, I was like, okay, we're shifting. This is big. This is historic. Mm-hmm. This is amazing. And she has the hardest job in American theater. She has the hardest job. And then I saw that Evan was coming with her. And I, I knew Evan from San Francisco. I was like, amazing, wonderful. And then the job posting came out for director of new work. And I remember thinking to myself like, oh my God, this job off like description is incredible. And um, I I gave it to my dad and my dad said, um, <laughs> um, do, do they know you? Did they write this for you? <laughs> like, no, but thanks, dad. Let's hope they agree. Um, and they agreed. And I think my job is to change the field. Like, that's what I think my job is. Hmm. Um, and what I mean by that, I mean by through development to what the pipeline is, um, uh, the, the way in which we think about who gets in and who is developed and what is developed and how we're going about it and um, all of all of those things at a at a theater with three theaters, you know, and an online platform and 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 I mean I, I feel very grateful to be able to join the team there at one of the largest theaters in America. The pipeline is something that we're, that we're really uh, watching and, and concerned about. Um, you know, uh, with the death of the lark and with Humana Festival, looks like it's going to continue in some form, but not, I mean, not the Humana Festival. There'll be new play work at Actors Theatre of Louisville, I should say. From what I can tell, that's, <laughs> I don't know if Humana is going to be involved in that, but there won't be that gathering. And I wondered, how do you feel about the future of New York? Obviously, you feel pretty positive about your, your, your role in it, but, um, 
it does seem like a, a, an odd time, an uncertain time for new artists to be entering the field, um, especially after the pandemic, but also just where everyone's sort of sorting out how it's going to work. Absolutely. I mean, it is such like a hit to the field, right? Like mm -hmm. I just, I, I also want to say that. Um, so what I also see is, you know, there is also still a lot of incredible work being done. I'm going to be at the Pacific Playwrights Festival um, in April at Southwest Rep as a director. And also I'm like double dutying, you know, okay. like, oh, sure. Yeah, I'll direct this and I'll be there um, as, as an OSF uh, representative. And what I see is the a little less of a pipeline, actually, for more experimental work. And that's what I actually think um, I'm, I'm really committed to and interested in and, and the work that might not easily end up on our stages because theater is a business. I am not worried about development of new plays. The American theater runs 99% or 95% regional nonprofit American theater runs mostly on plays. Commercial theater runs on musicals, right? And so you've right. got, you've got that, that different thing. And so, so to me, I'm actually not that worried about it. I'm worried about our more experimental theater makers. Okay. Um, I'm worried about, 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 about the way in which that their work is shepherded and, and, and dropped at a certain level. Or I'm, I'm worried about our fear of what audiences will believe is palatable. I'm, I'm more worried about that. And I'm actually more committed to that while also loving plays, loving playwrights. I think we have to do work on all of those parts. And I'm, I'm worried more about artists. Yeah. When I think about development, developing new plays, I'm worried about the artists who are going to survive to their next production mm -hmm. because they have not been able to pay rent. Right. So I'm thinking about that. And how to change the way we think about funding. I love Jesse Alex emerging from the cave, right? So profoundly beautiful, absolutely about you know, holistic artist support. Like that's what we need to be on. Um, you think about how Lynn Nottage had three things running at the same, or does have three things running at the same time. Mm -hmm. And at 28, she quit her job in order to write. If 28, she had not quit her job in order to write and not be in the position to make that leap, what could have happened to mm. Lynn Nottage, right? right? There are so many incredible artists who are actually being recognized for their work, getting major commissions. But, you know, you get a, a major commission from an organization like, let's say, Creative Capital. How much of that 50000 is actually going towards your living versus your project? Because I can tell you that artists will put their art first to the point where they're paying their collaborators and they're barely able to pay rent. Hmm. So that is something that is systemically across our, 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 our society, a problem where there is an artist who um, uh, we were able to sort of um, uh, uh, put some commission monies towards their work. And they were like, you know, what I really need is my roof is about <laughs> to fall down and winter is coming. Can you write the broken roof? Can that play be developed at a workshop when your roof is broken? You know what I mean? Like that's where we are right now. That's right. what we need to fix right now. Yeah. And it raises so many questions about the internship apprenticeship structure and, you know, like how, how do people enter this industry in a secure way? Um, 
can can you just uh, be specific about um, what your portfolio like of, of of how many plays you might be developing at? Is is there a certain number of plays you're going to get to develop or or experimental works at Organ Shakes? Um, and it will show up in the programming in various ways because you said there's you know there's the, the main stages there's the, there's the virtual. I'm just curious about that, you know, or is it more more open ended than that? <laughs> it's like I'll say this: I'm less interested in the quantity, right, of like what we have in our docket, and more what are the relationships we're building with artists and across organizations. So, so I, I, I just want to shift that paradigm of what, 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 what that question was, right? Right, right. So okay. like, sure. like, like, I think it's, it's like, well, how, how do we actually continue to work with people across the field? And mm -hmm. how do we actually like make sure that each artist is connected to those other organizations? And, you know, the, like OSF is, there's so many things going on all at once. Yeah. So I can tell you that on my docket, our development for the works that are going to be in 22, development for works that are going to be in 23, development for works that might be beyond, development right. for works that might be um, in relation in in relationship to Scarlett Kim and innovation strategy, development okay. for works that we might never do, but we want to make sure are done. Yeah, I mean, they, they definitely have the American Revolution is 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 a antecedent of that where they were seeding productions that didn't necessarily have to happen at Oregon. So it's not like it's a new. A t totally brand new model of but of commissioning, but yeah, I was just curious. I was just, and I know I was asking a question like, "What's the product? How much are you gonna pump out?" I, that's, yeah. That was that's it's good you challenge that frame. Speaking of amazing products, I think Ali wants to ask about. It. We're both yeah. very curious. Let's about talk about dim sum warriors. <laughs> what is what is that? <laughs> dim sum warriors uh, is incredible. Uh, started as a graphic novel by Colin Go and Yin Yin Wu, who are uh, Singaporeans and also filmmakers and, and, and just incredible artists. Um, and I fell in love with the, the graphic novel, the comic book. I thought, oh, this is so wonderful. And, you know, they were my family in New York. Like I would go over to their house for, for Chinese New Year. And I remember, I didn't remember this, but I guess I said something like, you should make this into a musical. And about a month later, they came to me and they said, hey, we remembered what you said about that. I said, did I say that? They're like, yeah, you did. Like, <laughs> they're like, um, would you be interested in like helping us do that as a director, you know, as, as all that? And I was like, oh, you know, and they know way more famous people than me. like way more like, you know, whatever. They, they were just very hooked up. And I was like, are you sure? <laughs> they're like, yeah, yeah, we think you'll be great. I'm like, okay, great. So um, I remember uh, trying to think about like music. So we were looking at composers and like, oh, who, who would this be? And I remember going to um, the 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 performance of Angel's Bone at, that uh, by Du Yun uh, as part prototype festival. Mm -hmm. And I remember being so blown away. I was like, I have never heard anything like this. This is like earth shattering to me. Like I I cannot believe the imagination that's in this work. And I contacted her. I said, Hey, I'd love to get to know you. Would you be at all interested in doing a comic book? Dim Sum Warriors. You know, she's from Shanghai. She loves Dim Sum. Um, and she was really taken by it. She also felt like the deep heart in the work. So she came on board. Um, and, and then she won the Pulitzer for Angel's Bone. 
Um, and we all, uh, uh, we, we were, we, we were working with Stan Lai, um, at Theater of Above in Shanghai. I had actually, it's, it's all, you know, circular, but I assisted him in 2015 on Secret Love and Beach Blossomland at OSF and we got to know each other. And then he would, he asked me to direct his, um, his play at the Lark, all coming together, um, wow. to develop. And then at some point in time, I said, Hey, Stan, can I, can I, talk to you about this idea and so I sent him the the comic books and I had him meet with Colin again and he's like I love this let's do it in Chinese let's do it in Mandarin in Shanghai next year <laughs> and we're like there's no script there's no music <laughs> let's go let's go <laughs> so we did that and and the next um we did that oh my goodness was it 2018 2019 and then the next year it went on a national tour in China to 25 cities in the largest opera houses that's amazing. This so amazing story. It's so, so many touch points there. OSF, The Lark, Stan Lai, who we, we wrote about a couple of years ago. Amazing artists. Um, I also, speaking of amazing artists, you also, there's a tour of Where We Belong at Madeline Syed's one woman show. Would you say? I know she did a TED talk that's, is it sort of around the same themes or same, uh, or is it totally different? I mean, Maddie has so much to say. So yeah. I'm, I, I, I can guess that the tech talk might have included, you know, uh, speaking about colonization from Mohegan oh, perspective. Yeah, sure, sure, like, sure. I'm sure that that would have been included and yeah. possibly, <laughs> uh, her as a Shakespeare director as well, possibly, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and a hundred on her ancestors. So, um, what the show is really is, is she keeps saying it and she's right that it's not a lecture, right? That it's some, mm-hmm. it, it's a work that continues to change every single time we do it like actual text changes because of who she's becoming in the moment and the world she's witnessing happen as we go along so in 2018 when we were at shakespeare's globe we performed in the sam wanamaker space which was lit with candles um and and you know in that space where people who came were all the people who were um, in the play itself and, you know, her mom and her dad, but also the academic who took her around the British Museum. All of the people were there. And then, um, uh, we were invited to come to Woolly to do a full production with, mm-hmm. with, with all the elements. And that's where this production really began was at Woolly, uh, during, uh, during the pandemic before we had vaccines and everything. So we decided to do it as a film to be safer, to be safer for the audiences who are coming in and also, uh, it's very beautiful that it was able to be distributed to the people who she really wants to see it, which are, you know, Mohegan youth. Right, um, right. um, so it's really about her story, uh, her, what, what it was like to grow up Mohegan, what it, what it's like to uh, think about her ancestors who cross over the ocean to journey to England the same way that she's also doing, um, and her grappling with, you know, the, the, uh, violence <laughs> against her people from the colonists and um her really loving um Shakespeare's work and right. and 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 the tension and, and all of those things yeah that yeah I've I've read I've read some material of hers I maybe I was conflating in my mind the TED talk video and the video I saw going around I didn't see the video of where we belong but it was also available online and I thought oh there's a, that's the video of Madeline but it's it's to, it's to show it's quite different from her TED talk I'm sure um uh, that's going to be at the Goodman in June, I think is, is the one date we've seen. It's going to make a tour around various regionals, I guess. 
Yeah, it's gonna. It started the national tour started at uh, Baltimore in October, so we put okay. together a tour version of it in October, and then it was there in October, and then it we're going to be in Philadelphia in April, okay, and then uh, we're also going to be in Seattle, Seattle Rep, Goodman, and uh, at the Public in the fall, and we have other dates and places coming up as well in twenty three. Oh, awesome, the Public, that's great. Um, I can't resist mentioning. Uh, maybe you've heard. Someone's brought up the song Seven and a Half Cents from Pajama Game. Do you know this song? I don't. <laughs> so it's <laughs> it's the greatest uh, labor organizing song of any American musical. No, Pajama Game is about a pajama factory and the climactic almost 11 o'clock numbers when someone goes, seven and a half cents doesn't seem like a lot, but you add it up over this many months and this many years and that I'm getting this much money. It's like a pro-labor math. It's a, it's a song about math. And, um, it, and it's actually what's great about it is it's framing it from the point of view of not that management wants to take that away, but that workers are asking for that and management doesn't want to give it. And the manager's like, seven and a half cents, that's not that much. So it's like just seven yes. minutes. Seven minutes, you should, you should play it in your pre-show music <laughs> or something. I love that. I love that. That's actually like right in line to play. Love yeah, that. it's wonderful. You can find, I think there's a YouTube of, uh, Doris Day was in the movie. Mm. Not the person you would associate with labor organizing maybe, but she, anyway, it's uh, I just decided to throw that in there as a fun callback um i can't wait to see the, the the play i've just been out of town i'm gonna try to get out to see that man so wonderful to talk to you and meet you in this virtual way yeah thank you so much for being here it's been such a pleasure if you're in new york obviously go see uh, seven minutes at here arts center and uh is it gonna is it gonna be made available virtually or digitally or i don't not think this, so not no. this person. that's okay well get it in person watch for man's work all around the country OSF uh, regionals man it's wonderful wonderful to talk to you thank you so much Rob and Alex great to meet you okay thank you bye now bye